Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Investing with IBD sponsored by Vantage Point. Today is March 10th, 2021. I'm your host, Arusha Pierce, and we have Scott Bennett on the show. Scott is the founder of Invest with Rules. Scott, thanks for being here. Arusha, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast and a longtime subscriber and fan of Bill O'Neill and all, all the Investors Business Daily work. Now, thank you. Uh, on today's podcast, we are going to talk about the current markets. We are going to talk about the importance of following an institution, and then we will end with a few current ideas. Let's get into the current market, and it's an interesting market for sure. We are officially in a correction uh, right now, um, but you know, on, on the Dow, with the way the Dow is acting, you potentially could argue there was a fall today. Uh, that being said. The NASDAQ stocks have gotten hit quite a bit. The Dow stocks, the S&P 500 stocks, the New York Stock Exchange stocks are hanging in there. Scott, what are your thoughts on this market? Yeah, thanks, Arusha. So the way I see it on the, if you were to look at a long-term trend, the market's still very much in an uptrend. Mm -hmm. um, specifically on the S&P 500, it looks to me like you're still, on a shorter term basis, you're still in an uptrend. Um, the NASDAQ, unfortunately, doesn't look as kind. Right. Um, to me, the, the lower risk entry point was all the way back in October of 2020. That was for both U.S. and foreign stocks. Um, unfortunately, um, I think the market really changed character at the end of last year. And um, what it looked like to me is a rotation from large cap to small cap, from tech to financials, energy, materials, and it looks like that's still continuing, and it's uh, looked like it was the same today. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And we are definitely seeing that those trends uh, in the stocks over the, the last couple of months. So, Scott, let's uh, get into your background. How did you get into investing? How did you end up uh, starting Invest with Rules? Um, well, getting into investing was really uh, straightforward and simple. I worked for Fidelity Investments for over 16 years. And um, really part of my role there was I was a certified financial planner and I supported some of Fidelity's uh, great high net worth investors. I started at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, I worked my way up to uh, their vice president role in the local investor center. So I had an incredible experience working with uh, really intelligent investors. Um, some that were just everyday savers, um, doctors, lawyers, fund managers. And I had... Um, as you know, a little bit, it's, uh, I had a lot of access to some of Fidelity's really brilliant minds. Yeah. Um, so that's how I got into investing. And it wasn't always so rosy. If I, if I kind of think back to 2008 is kind of the start of where my investing kind of went into overdrive. And if I remember, it's hard to forget 2008. Yes. Um, but I was face-to-face -face across from clients doing financial planning and investment guidance. And it was incredibly difficult. And when the market was down 10, no big deal. But then all of a sudden it went from 10 to 20 to 30. And I was packed. I was doing appointments back to back all day, voicemails, emails. I was working really hard. But the big, big thing was that I was, it was really devastating because you're working with such great people and the projections that you're running are unfortunately getting worse each meeting. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the, the biggest challenge is 
very different than the coronavirus pullback is we're all at home. There's really, there was really nowhere to go. But I think it's really hard to tell someone who's approaching retirement, they need to work a little bit longer. Or if someone's in retirement, they have to spend a little bit less and, and, and they're on Facebook looking at their friends having fun. And, and it's just, it's really scary time. So I, I think back and I was trying to figure out like there's, there's gotta be a better way. And I really don't want my clients, I don't want myself or my family to go through an environment like that again. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, just some of those conversations must have been, especially around back to back to back conversations here. I mean, the, the stress level must have been going through the roof for all, obviously for all your clients, but also you. It, it is very emotional. So I, I would say a lot of the financial planning community tends to um, be on kind of, it's kind of a, an older generation or a much younger generation. So the younger generation hasn't really seen a, a huge pullback. Um, okay. But it's incredibly hard. I mean, it's, yeah. you're, at the time I was pretty relatively young. Um, I mean, I know financial planning, I know numbers, but you got to pick up a lot of kind of emotional coefficient EQ skills quick. And yeah. it's really hard while people are, I think the hardest part of all is there's some part of all of our brains that when you're losing money fast, you just want to bail. And most of the time for most people, that's probably the absolute worst time to bail. And yeah, it, it well, I mean, just get, yeah, at once, once things have started to really sell off, then it's, it, you're at a point where no one knows what to do. And, and, and so, yeah, a lot of times the best thing to do is do nothing, especially if you're in mutual funds and, and things like that. But I mean, just, just you talking about those experiences, I mean, it brings me back to 2000. That's really what inspired me to get into this and start studying the system. And I remember in 2000 working with people, and I was at Fidelity actually at that point, uh, and, and talking to people who were planning to retire in a year or two, and, and now they had to extend that out for another five, six, seven years because of the 2000 to 2002 bear market. It, financial planning is interesting because a lot of the time, people don't always need you. Um, when the times are good, they don't need you. But when the times are bad, they, they really need you. And it's usually a little late. So yeah. um, I think that's one of the, the hardest parts is it's always good to have a plan ahead of time, uh, which is my start, start saving young and um, always have a plan that you, you really believe in because that way you'll stick with it when the times get really tough. Right. But that emotional part though, even as great as your plan is, you only really find out if you're gonna stick with that plan when you're going through those extreme types of environments, because it's amazing what those emotions can do to you. Uh, and, and a lot of times if you're following those emotions, you are going to sell out right at the bottom. Yeah. And for me too, I mean, I, I'm, I had challenges too. So, I mean, my 401k was hit incredibly hard. Um, at the time I owned growth stocks that got crushed. I yeah. had dividend stocks that stopped paying dividends. Oh, um, it was a, so I internalized it and I said, okay, well, how do I personally invest with more confidence? Because if I can, then my clients can. And I, I think a hard part of this current year is your most traditional portfolios are when the market goes down, you buy bonds, but, but bonds have been pretty challenged this year. Mm -hmm. So it, it's been a, a hard environment um, for anyone kind of diversified with bonds and gold and things of that nature where it's hard to hide. Right. So 
Um, for me, what was kind of the most pivotal point is in the access within Fidelity is I got invited to a dinner with a, a $200 billion fund manager. And it was like the, by far and away, one of the coolest internal meetings I've ever been to. It, it was just so eye-opening. Yeah. And the storylines that he shares is, so this is um, just the access, the intelligence, the, the modeling, the technology, the resources are, are really, that's why they're a $7 trillion firm. And what's really fascinating is most companies fly into Boston to come see um, the Fidelity team. Mm -hmm. But what, and then he's telling all these intimate stories where you clearly know he knows these people on a first name basis. He probably has their cell phone number. It's clearly different than what, how we're playing. So, but what's really interesting to me is he was sharing a story of when, um, I'll share, it's the, the Fidelity Contra Fund, when he went to Omaha for the investors meeting and had a, a, a team meeting with the Berkshire Hathaway team. And out of all of the stories, this is the one that like, this was like, wow, this is fascinating, is he asked Warren Buffett, okay, well, you manage a lot of money. I manage a lot of money. Um, how do you do it? Like, wh what do you do when you manage this much money? Yeah. And, his, and the kind of response back from Warren Buffett was something to the tune of, well, how often do you have an incredible idea? And the response was not that often. And, he's, and the classic Warren Buffett, well, when you do, bet big. And at that moment, I'm sitting there as he's talking about different companies and storylines. I look around the room, everyone's jotting down ticker symbols. They're on their cell phones, typing away ticker symbols of all the companies that he's talking about. Mm -hmm. But I, I kind of stopped and I thought, well, how do I know he's buying? And what's he buying? And what's he selling? And if I can figure this out, this could be the key to absolutely everything. And I thought to myself, I've only seen this before with IBD and institutional sponsorship and these great ratings, but what if I could find multiple funds buying the same stock? And then when I feel horrible, like some of the tech stocks recently, if I know large funds are buying, I would feel a whole lot better if I knew they were still buying, if they're right. still accumulating. Right. So that kind of gave me this kind of pivotal moment of how I started my um, my newsletter invest with rules and really the entire mission is I help self-directed investors who feel really uncertain about what to buy. They definitely feel overwhelmed when to sell. And I use a little known, uh, very legal and ethical way um, to pick up a lot of this institutional buying from billion dollar fund managers. And I share those themes uh, for free on a weekly email. And then I share the names of the stocks that I see consistently repetitive um, to some of my subscribers. So I, I absolutely love it. It's so exciting. And when the, when the names show up, um, some of my subscribers were like, like, they work for a company and their name shows up. You could just tell like, they're like, whew, like I, I, I own a lot of shares. Like, thank goodness. I know people are buying too. <laughs> no. And yeah. And, and that's in many ways, the core of IBD strategy, the Canson strategy that Bill O'Neill devised and came up with years ago. It is to follow where the big money's going, because in the end, they're going to be right, it's, if, especially if there are enough of them going in the, and rowing in the same direction, they're going to be right. And uh, Bill O'Neill definitely had you, you, a good reason for that. Uh, and he ended up you know, having a lot of these guys as clients, too, and for their William O'Neill and company uh, serviced institutional uh, our institutional company. But uh, that's the name of the game. 
it's a, we use that. That's very, very important for us to, when we look at a stock, we always want to make sure, hey, is Contrafund in it or some other Fidelity funds are in it or some of these other really good uh, fund managers who, who've stood the test of time, have been around for 10, 20 years and survived 2008. Yeah. And I always think too, I mean, the last few days you've seen the NASDAQ sell off at the end of the day. And yeah. this, these aren't small investors. These are, this is big money being pushed around. Yeah. And when you see stocks gap down and gap up, this is all big money being pushed. And um, obviously we, there's no insider trading, but it's one of those things where if you can, as I, the thing that really rung true to me with how to make money in stocks is just 75% of the volume is institutions. And I, I mean, it was, it's, it, it's so, it's spot on. It, it's so clear that, okay, well, let's be honest. They have modeling capabilities that, that most people don't have. They have uh, access that most people don't have. And, and now you have capital that most people don't have. So it's, it makes total sense that, um, by that, that I within the Kanslim model is so important. Yeah. No, it, it, it's excellent and it, and it works. It, it's just, uh, it's not always easy, but the, the market's in a correction. So make sure you are managing your risk. But remember, we could go back into an uptrend at any time. If we have another powerful, strong day on the NASDAQ or S&P 500, the market team, uh, we could have a fall through day and the market team would put it back into an uptrend. Let's take a quick break. But when we return, we're gonna talk about the importance of following institutions. We'll be back. Struggling to navigate the new markets and conquer volatility? Will stocks plunge downwards or are there bullish trends on the horizon? Vantage Point can help. Their team of experts is ready to show you how artificial intelligence can predict market patterns up to 72 hours in advance. Go to www.freestockcoaching.com and experience Vantage Point's AI for free. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Scott Bennett is our guest on Investing with IBD, sponsored by Vantage Point. Okay, Scott, let's get into the importance of following institutions. You started getting into it at the, the end of the last segment. Let's go into a more detail here. Absolutely. So uh, every single month, I, um, I follow dozens upon dozens of funds so they can be hedge funds, family office trusts. I, I'm, I look at so many different things, but really what it's trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to find um, specific to, um, to certain stocks that have just kind of more emphasis that they're kind of aiming at what they're focusing at. Okay. So if it would be okay, if we could kind of flip to those screens. Sure. Um, so so I guess that kind of, but at an overarching, what I've learned face-to-face -face sitting down with clients and even personally is that there's times where I feel a little uncertain of kind of what do you buy? And then the hardest part is when do you sell? I mean, I was talking to a subscriber the other day that, that did own Tesla and obviously it's made an incredible run last year. And then this last couple of weeks has been incredibly painful. And I think selling it for a quick loss or even just selling after a big gain is just so hard. Mm -hmm. And when I look at institutional sponsorship, the way I think of it is like, so you're looking at this, like a brush stroke. If you just look at one fund, if you just look at kind of the buys and sells within one fund, kind of a point to point analysis, you're looking at just like a really colorful brush stroke. And it's hard to kind of make out really what it is. But 
if you go to the next slide, like you take a step back and it's a, it's a Monet painting. It's like lily pads. It's, it, it tells a story. And that's really what I'm looking for. I'm looking yeah. for a consistent story that the market's delivering. And that helps drive an incredible amount of confidence. So as an example, um, a recent article was, um, I, I guess I would say when a football team or a basketball team goes in for halftime and they kind of readjust the, the plays and, and kind of their, their agenda, we're definitely in the second half of the coronavirus investing playbook. And the first half was the stay at home trades and the biotech trades. Yeah. And the second half is definitely the reopening story. It's, uh, it's a growing economy with some inflation and it's sectors that are totally changing form. But a way to see that is when you, when you look monthly at all these different reports, it's definitely telling a picture and a story. So where I struggled in the beginning and where a lot of people who struggle do this on the next slide is what they typically do is they just go to kind of financial TV and they, they say, okay, well, I'm going to rewind back to 2020 and they say, okay, well, well, Warren Buffett bought and sold these airlines. So, you know, he sold airlines in the beginning of 2020. Mm -hmm. And in theory with the 13F report, this is a, anything that's over a hundred million dollars needs to kind of show their cards at the end of every quarter but you don't know if he sold in January, you don't know if he sold in March, but you find out 45 days after the end of the quarter. So at the end of March, you find out May 15th and you watch, your you watch TV and you're like, okay, well, he sold his airlines. You have no idea when he actually sold. And you're late is the biggest issue. And it's really old information. So where, where I'm trying to figure out is finding information faster. And on the very next slide, I'm about 30 days late and I have absolutely uh, zero desire to have any sort of uh, legal or ethical issues. This is all public information. Right. And really what I'm trying to do is narrow down very specific things. And on the very next slide, I'm looking for three things and I think this can totally help your process. So number one is I'm looking for institutions that are buying millions of dollars and there's sometimes billions of dollars worth of quantity of shares. And I'm also looking at the selling as well. So you can't just look at one side. What really gets me excited about what I'm looking at is I want to see share price increases and I want to see the position really jump in size. So from a point to point, as, I, as I'm looking at analysis, I really want to see kind of a thirst for shares. And is there some kind of like percentage, like it goes from a 1% to like a three, 4% position in their portfolio, something like that? Well, I guess it all depends on the market cap is, okay. is the reality of it. So a very large tech company, you're going to see a one or 2% position. It's not going to mean that much on your yeah. screen, but some of the, their newer positions, um, you'll see double digit and sometimes triple digit share increases. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for... Um, I do want to see them have consistency. So I want to see month after month buying. I want to see them deploy enough capital where they care and it has impact. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm doing this across dozens upon dozens of funds. And then the final thing that we have to be looking at is the market cap impact. So how much of the float are they really scooping up monthly? Right. And that tips me off to themes and names that I never would have come across otherwise, except for clicking around on MarketSmith. So, I mean, these are the names that you're like, well, I, I, how am I going to find these names? Like, like, these are such fascinating things. And the only way to find them 
is in the early trajectory because some managers have different personality types, right. which is really interesting. And yeah. I'm sure it's the same working where you are. There's just so many portfolio managers with different strategies of trading, different strategies of thesis. Yes. And so I follow two very simple rules. My first rule is you have to buy what the billion dollar fund managers are buying. It's just, you, you can't go against uh, the, the tidal wave of money. And then on number two, which is the next slide is I sell what they're selling. And they have so much institutional capital that it takes them a long time to get in and a long time to get out. So when they need to get in, they don't want to kind of rock the price too hard. They have to buy in slowly. So it gives us opportunities to get in. And when they get out, usually it's slowly. If it's fast, I get really worried and then I'll, I'll run too. But it's really hard to kind of, kind of extinguish a position really fast. There's just too much capital and they'll, they'll destroy their own price. So if we go to the next slide, this is kind of a, if you kind of click through it, this is what I was seeing in 2020. So I hope it's helpful. I, I love to share this because I think it's so exciting. So, and before that, Scott, so yeah. for, for those of you who are listening to this, when you get back home or you're near a computer, go to investors.com slash podcast and you can see all of these slides that Scott has shared with us on, on the video version. Yeah, so it was interesting. So we kind of, we have to do a little hindsight but I'm using the reports that I'm looking at. So mm -hmm. at the end of 2019, this was the very last few days of the year, there was this unknown pneumonia virus. And, right. then, and, and then the World Health Organization kind of pinned it as kind of COVID-19 the second week of January. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm always 30 days reviewing data. So if you go one more slide for me, this is what I started seeing. And it's starting to tell me a picture. And again, I have to take a step back because one month doesn't always tell you everything. But I did see an awful lot of buying of Moderna, an awful lot of buying of Regeneron. Wow. And okay, well, maybe they think it's going to come to the US, maybe. I mean, you have to ask these like what if questions to yourself as you're looking through this. Mm -hmm. um, dumping oil fast, dumping airlines fast. And I was like, okay, well, obviously they, potentially they think this is gonna kind of spread. Um, if we go to the very next month, so I'm looking for confirmation now, I start seeing more healthcare purchases. I start seeing more stay-at-home tech purchases. And again, not all the funds are on the same page. Some are starting to pile into certain names. The, the dumping is what was really, on, like you couldn't miss it. Yeah. Large banks, energy, Disney, theme parks, they were getting thrown out the window. And when I'm looking at this data, I was like, whoa, something, something's happening. And it's hit me off in February that it's time to protect. And then at the end of February, the market really kind of came unglued. Right. And then if we move over to March, um, now this is pretty much um, from February all the way until kind of May, I started to see a change. And the, the crescendo, the plunge happened. And then I started seeing a couple of kind of the more courageous, I would call them managers. They started buying uh, Marriott, Hilton, Penn Gaming. So they're, they start kind of showing their cards, no, no gambling pun intended, that, <laughs> that the world might be opening sooner than we think. Yeah. And I remember at this point, we're probably all still like washing our groceries. So it's, so we're, we're, I'm starting to see a picture where you're like, well, they're, 
they're starting to gobble up shares of things that most people aren't. And if we go one more down the line, um, what I'm clearly seeing now um, is, let me see if I can move that, yeah, is the theme is exactly similar as it has been the last several months. It's they're buying big banks, they're buying energy. And I always think whenever you, you're watching like financial TV and they're like, don't hold energy. That should be like the time you lean forward and you go, ooh, we're getting close, we're getting close. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Um, and then definitely the reopening story is still a very big theme. Um, I mean, a good example, like in my portfolio, which I never would have bought these companies because the fundamentals don't make any sense because the year-over-year -year comps now are enormous, which is really confusing for looking at kind of change, change of earnings data and change of revenue data. But I never would have owned GE. Um, that burned me in 2008. I, yeah. I, I, still, I still dislike them. And then like Simon Properties. I haven't gone to the mall in so long, but that that's a name multi, that yeah. it's the reopening story. Yeah. So obviously I'd like to see more exciting companies with earnings and sales growth, um, but the money's flowing out of large tech. And then it really, you've started to notice it on charts that it's really flowing out of large tech. Right. So this is kind of the exciting stuff that I go through and that I share. So once a week, I share a theme that I see um, that's at investwithrules.com. And then if, if people want to see the stocks, that's something I love to share as well. But yeah, that's, that's the, in my opinion, the power of institutional players that have more analysts, more data, more money. Yeah. And I'm just following their footprints. Yeah. And so now looking at that data, if you start, especially on the downside, if you start you're starting to notice some of these funds selling and obviously it's 30, 30 days delayed at best. Mm -hmm. uh, when do you start selling? Um, that's a really good question. So one of the things that I adore from investors business daily is relative strength mm -hmm. and relative strength is always the tip for me. So uh, a line in the sand rule number two, if they're selling, I'm going to sell. Um, I do want to see consistent selling. So there's times where I'll scale Okay. But there's a chance, I mean, I'm looking at, let's call it around a trillion dollars. There's still another, I don't know, 14 trillion that I can't see um, as fast as what I really want. So relative strength is my tip. So I love to look at relative strength from a week to week change and a month to month change. Okay. And it tells me a picture where I don't have to like, I always, people always like to say, well, I look at the chart and it tells me, I, I've been looking at charts for years and sometimes it tells me one thing and sometimes it tells me something totally different. Right. So what I simply do is I'm looking at relative strength deterioration. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. You've, you've quantified it in, in many ways to, to make it more objective to you. Yeah. And I, I mean, I assume, um, and I always love, there's nothing better than confirmation from IBD. So when I see the sponsorship ratings, uh, when I see RS movement, you're like, whew, I'm on the right page. Yeah. And then I, I really enjoy once a month, um, there's part of the paper, it's like the special edition where you guys are covering um, incredible data too. And it's like, okay, well, I'm on the right page. Um, I'm definitely hitting on all resources. Yeah. The, the mutual fund buying data is that, are you talking about that? Yep, the, exactly yeah. Right. No, yeah, that, that's a really popular part. So knowing where institutions are going can give you an idea of where the money is flowing. Coming up next, we will talk about a few ideas. Stay tuned. When a stock skyrockets, 
We're all eager to see if it will push higher or reverse course. And there is one tool that can help, artificial intelligence. Vantage Point's AI has been calling so many bullish runs for stocks charging upwards in advance with up to 87.4% proven accuracy. Go to www.freestockcoaching.com to see the AI for yourself in a free live demonstration. Check out this must-see tool for predictive analysis. Visit www.freestockcoaching.com to save your seat at this complimentary event. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. We are back with Scott Bennett on Investing with IVD, sponsored by Vantage Point. Okay, Scott, let's go into a few ideas here. And the, the first one that we are going to start out with is a Fiserv, a ticker symbol F-I-S-V. So this is a software company that supports banks and credit unions. And you might know them from Zelle or a few other products. They're the, okay. the think tank behind a lot of their mobile applications. Uh, what really stands out to me is they made an acquisition in 2019 from First Data and they acquired BluePay, which is now called Clover. And Clover is the lucky Clover that they have, right? Now, today it makes up about 5% of their revenues. But what's really fascinating is Clover is very similar to like a Square or a PayPal or a Stripe. The only difference is it's a little bit more helpful to the restaurant and the venue community. And what they have right now is about 1,500 restaurants on the Clover platform. Mm -hmm. And they just acquired another company where that gives them another 20,000. So interestingly enough, they're actually growing Clover faster than Square now from a merchant perspective. Wow. And so they're growing about 37% on the Clover product. And they're trading at about one-tenth the valuation of Square. So what is really interesting is it's trading at about a 15 times multiple. Um, most of the fintech space are trading at about a 25 to 30 multiple. So let's say that the, the, the reason for that is they have large debt on their balance sheet. But if they're, they're bringing in $3 billion to now $4 billion a year in cash flow, they can cover their debt. And then the future is Clover, not to mention an awful lot of insider buying recently, as well as share buybacks. So this is a story that we'll probably see more acceleration coming up in, in the future. Yeah, so yeah, and they look like they're very close to hitting their all-time highs here. They they built up. They're coming out of also a consolidation type of base. Uh, so with Clover, you said it was five percent of the the revenue right now. That that's what I read. It's about five percent okay. of the revenue, and it's growing really fast. Okay, that's interesting. Because uh, so I'm wondering how long before it really impacts the the company where they make a huge dent. But that being said, you know what? A lot of times the stocks will anticipate that uh, if they see a huge catalyst like that. Yeah. Now, what about the relative strength here? The relative strength is only a, a 41 uh, at that point. How, how, how do you balance uh, that? I think that's part of kind of the the, the Melvin Capital potential let go is, is okay. my is my explanation, but relative strength has been recently increasing. It's kind yeah. of breaking out right this moment, um, and and I, I'm it's one of the it's it made a major run for years, and it's yes. been kind of treading sideways, and and I I kind of like that it's been kind of consolidating after a large acquisition. So um, 
the two pieces that I like is one, it's it's in the fintech space. It's not totally overvalued. Number two, it's it's if they're serving restaurants, they're completely in the reopening story. That's a great, great point. So that's Fiserv, ticker symbol F-I-S-V. Let's go to the, the next one. And this is RPRX, which is Royalty Pharma. And mm-hmm. it looks like it's a, a new IPO that came out in June 16th forming a, a big cup with a handle here. And, and uh, what, what makes this so interesting? Yeah, so this company has been around for years, recently IPO to raise more money. I think of this company as like a healthcare hedge fund. Um, but what's interesting is unlike most hedge funds, they have to go buy the entire company or the entire uh, biopharmaceutical, which uh, I'll, I'll lean on you and your bio, biopharmacal, biopharmaceutical back, background. <laughs> But they actually cherry pick the specific products within the company and they help fund the specific products. So today they have about 45 different products. They, they actually made eight transactions last year. So they actually have a piece of AbbVie's blood cancer drug, Vertex's cystic fibrosis, wow. Biogen's multiple sclerosis, Gilead's HIV. So what's really fascinating is they have their paw prints in a lot of really successful products. So they're growing cash flows at about 22% adjusted, and they should be compounding at seven to 10% per year to 2025 is their estimates that they gave and they pay a yield. So Mr. Wonderful is kind of cash flow royalty king. Um, this is a, a company that as stocks are moving through the, the clinical phases of one, two, three and approval, each phase is a little harder. Each phase takes more capital. And what they're typically doing is coming in at the later stage where it's proven. Yeah. They just need a, a, a huge influx of money and they're getting a good chunk and a good deal. Um, I remember this story. I, I actually didn't know very much about a lot of this, but Fidelity out in Colorado has a partnership with Janice or Janice Henderson. Okay. And the manager, um, we had a, a fun meeting and the manager of their global life sciences fund, Andy, Andy Acker, his whole family's doctors. He's a, a healthcare mutual fund manager. And he's just like, uh, I think anyone who's a doctor and uh, comes from parents that are doctors, it's always one of those things where the child's supposed to be the doctor, but he's yeah. wildly successful healthcare manager. So, and he, he went through just how the, the stages work for me, which helped me understand just kind of the, the hurdles of from A to B, from, from like the one to two to two to three. And, it's interesting. I was, I looked through a lot of different funds and, and he even owns it. So it's a, it's in a lot of people's portfolios because it has a little bit of a defensive feel, but gives you exposure to the biotech sector. It's it's yeah. When, when you're describing what they do, it, it almost reminds me completely different industry, but 10 cent holding where, and 10 cents on a much larger scale, but they're getting a little piece of like every great uh, tech company out there in Asia and th- those are all going through the roofs, and so they're making a killing too. So that I, I really like the the strategy. It sounds really really interesting, especially since they're waiting until so- some of these uh, therapeutics are a little bit closer to getting actual final approval. Yeah. So you're in a first stage base. Um, mm-hmm. Sales are there. Their earnings weren't because they made a lot of acquisitions. They, they have to. I mean, it's a hedge fund more or less, so they have to keep acquiring to help fight off of. Uh, drugs that are kind of coming off off their patents. Um, but this is a story where if someone's looking for um, kind of a 
like a hedge fund venture capital type, but you're really cherry picking like the most exciting drugs that are really coming to fruition right about now, they have a piece of it. No, that's a great way to describe it. And then also on the right hand side here on the screen uh, with the index IVD mutual fund index ownership, you see Janice Henderson's in there and Fidelity Contra Fund. Uh, so uh, two really good funds that are already in this company and it's a pretty new company. So that's Royalty Farmer. Pharma, uh, RPRX. And uh, let's go to one more. And this is Upstart Holdings, ticker symbol UPST. And uh, w w what's uh, so interesting about these guys? Uh, Upstart is fascinating. Um, they are a, I'll give you one more fintech. They're an AI enabled consumer lending platform. Okay. So they're started by Google employees. They partner with banks and the banks do the lending. But in today's world, so if you're gonna get reviewed for a possible loan for credit, most of the time it's run on your FICO score. The most sophisticated models today are about 30 data points on you. Okay. What Upstart does is they have a series of questions. They're looking at tons of transaction data because the bank that you're using is sharing it. So they're looking at about 1600 data points when they're when they're helping the bank make more loans. So it's a tech company that's helping the banks. What's actually fascinating is they're helping banks drive about 27% more borrowers. They're actually, because of their, their AI, they're, they're getting less interest. So less paid interest for the consumer on the, on the other side of the, of the spectrum. And it's actually the same loss ratio and the losses go to the banks. They don't go to upstart. Okay. So 70% of the loans are done totally automated on the computer, no labor costs whatsoever. So if a bank is thinking, okay, let's say a smaller bank is trying to increase their, their loan capacity, um, you could just hire, hire Upstart. It's a win for them because now they're getting almost 30% more loans. Um, so they're making money on the interest. The consumer likes it because it's easy, mobile friendly, and the consumers who typically aren't able to get loans, but let's say they graduated college or they're self-employed, no one wants them. But now all of a sudden, it, there's nothing wrong with them. They just unfortunately either are, they don't fit the traditional FICO, FICO score. It's founder run. Um, it's not cheap. Um, it's not a, uh, it's a little bit more of an expensive stock, but it just had a pretty violent sell-off. And yes. now you're kind of right back at the IPO price. Right. So, um, and then this came out right after, the big uh, DoorDash, Airbnb. So it's kind of hidden behind it. Mm -hmm. And they actually have earnings. Today, they, I think they do 600,000 loans at, at a max of 50,000. So eventually they're probably gonna get more into the auto space, most likely into the mortgage space. Wow, so they, yeah. they might have a runway um, that justifies the, the price point. No, that's, yeah, I, I really like, they almost act like a broker. Yeah. Uh, and, they're, and they're just really kind of qualifying the candidates and then get, get given over to the banks and things like that. So it's really, really interesting. Uh, so there are a few ideas that are worth considering. Thanks, Scott, for joining us today. Next week, we will have Eve Balbeck on the show. Eve is a portfolio manager and she works with Jim Ropel too. So it's great to see her back. That's it for this week on Investing with IBD. I'm Arusha Paris and thanks for listening. And for this week's notes and charts, make sure to go to investors.com slash podcast where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. 
we'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. Hi, everyone. Arusha here. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. For full disclosure, I am a portfolio manager at O'Neill Global Advisors, which is a sister company of IBD, and I might be buying or selling any stocks that are mentioned in this podcast. Make sure to consult with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.